this is Steve Belfer, and you are listening to the Phantom Squad podcast. You are now entering the Phantom Squad podcast. Enjoy the madness. going to be another episode of the phantom squad podcast my awesome guest this week is composer for the awesome show spongebob mr stephen belfer how's it going man hey it's going great nice to see you thank you nice to see you too thanks for coming on it's a pleasure to have you thank you i enjoyed our little pre-show chat about guitars that was pretty fun <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So how did it start from like going from knowing Steve to writing the theme song to pitching it to Nickelodeon? Well, that's a great question. It actually started before, before any of that. I, I am originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. When I was in Milwaukee, I started doing animation. And uh, I, I thought I was the only person in the world that was doing animation because, you know, Milwaukee's not exactly the epicenter of of cartoons they're more known for like beer and sausage and cheese and you know sports yes (laughs) Um, i went to this school called cal arts california institute of the arts and it's it's here in uh, valencia california came out here i didn't know a single person in the state i get to this department which was called the experimental animation department and it was headed by this elderly artist named jules engel and he is the guy that designed, he, he, they designed Mr. Magoo to look like Jules. He had the little mustache, you know, and the little scarf. And he was a genius. Anyway, his program attracted really famous, really, really um, eclectic and talented artists from all over the place. So I get to this program. They introduced me to a bunch of my classmates. They go, okay, this is Steve Hillenberg. So I met him on my first day. I, I met people there from all over the world. Another friend of mine was—he uh, came straight from Beijing, and I was the first American that actually talked to him. He said, he "said You're the first American that I've actually had a conversation with." I'm like, "Okay, thank, you know that's good." And you know, we're still friends. I met so many great people, and one of them, of course, was Steve. So we did these student films. We got along right away because we had the same name. And yes. like he was older than me. So he's like, look, I'm older than you. So I'm Steve one and you're Steve two. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, that's fine. You know, he was, I think, seven years older than me. If, if a person is like one year older, I don't think that would work. But he had sort of that older brother kind of vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were peers. And uh, so you make these student films when you're in college. And Steve did a couple of films and he said, hey, uh, we formed a band um, called Flea Circus. And it sounded like a out of tune, like middle school orchestra because we would all play instruments that we didn't know how to play, but it was hilarious. I did music on his student films and he did music on my student films. We were just great friends. And so anyway, years go by and he's like, hey, Steve, I'm doing this pilot. Can you give me some music? Like, sure, man, okay. And he gives me some reference of old fashioned Hawaii kind of Hawaiian stuff. 
Yeah. I suppose these days, you know, you would say it's cultural appropriation to take this like indigenous traditional music from a culture and then essentially try and copycat it. Did it at, and I did it as authentically as I could. And I tried to really put as much feeling into it. And I was picturing his funny little characters. You know, I wasn't so much trying to copy a style of music, but I was trying to convey the feeling of of these goofy characters while I played it. So there's a lot of movement and sort of like decision making and questions that you kind of hear in the music. You know, it, they always use my music for when SpongeBob and Patrick are coming up with a really stupid plan. They're sitting around <laughs> thinking of, of of just something dumb. They're like, that's where my music <laughs> always comes in. Yeah, so I did this music for Steve for the pilot. They had a pilot, a premiere show where they invited all the crew members to sit down in this theater in Nickelodeon. And they had a, a slime fountain at the time. Nickelodeon was kind of like slime was their logo. It was the, the quintessential what you see 90s Nickelodeon. Yeah, they had a you go in the entrance and there was a like a tiled waterfall pond that was supposed to be slime that would flow. Oh, that is amazing. And but it it didn't have anything in it because they said they people would put like put their cigarettes out in it. Oh, God. And it would get garbage and bubble gum and stuff and it would clog the the slime pumps. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was still it was really cool. So we go to this premiere and they play the pilot episode. And, uh, you know, I'm ready. I'm ready. And SpongeBob is. And then there's my music. Man, it, it was so great. And then they used my theme as the closing theme for the cartoon. So you know that music that plays when it's over? And yes. It's like United Plankton Productions and showing the credits. Yes, stuff. Yes, yes. That's my little song. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So it's in every every episode. The episodes are like two packs. I think they're two. Yeah, they're like, like 2.11 to make it the full 22 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, so I get the double music every time it plays, and it's great. It's on in, I think, 220 countries. Oh, that is crazy. Yeah. So how was it for you going from, you know, just helping your friend out, you know, in your spare time to people around the world? Not, I know I know a lot, a lot of people know your songs, but how was that for uh-huh. you going, that's my music being played on these screens over these countries how was that impacted like for you emotionally emotionally it's 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 really rewarding it's um it's cool to see people do a cover version of my song on youtube there are all these people there they, they'll do it for the school talent show and they're all these guys and they've got guitars and they're having the best time and they're playing my song. And um, one time I went to uh, 11 minute episodes or two seven minute yeah, yeah, episodes. Yeah. I was on a road trip with my family, my wife and my son. And we went into a candy store called Rocket Fizz. And we go in this place and there's a screen and they're playing SpongeBob. And I, and I said to the guy that works there, that's maybe my wife said, you know, he did that song. And the guy's <laughs> like, really? And he looked at me like, like um, I was famous. You know, he looked at me like I was some kind of like rock star. And I'm that like, is... it's just a dumb song, you know, but it's so <laughs> popular. And he said, no, you don't understand. I was at a party and we're watching the SpongeBob DVD with all my college friends. I fell asleep 
the DVD menu kept playing on loop and they kept my song playing for 10 hours. And he was passed out and my song was playing for 10 hours. And <laughs> and he woke up and he's like, you know, okay, shut this off or whatever. But when he met me, he relayed that story. And I couldn't Good imagine. It's super brained in his head. <laughs> it's like a form of torture. You know? Oh my gosh! Now, how would and how I know that's a little sort of different for you compared to like Tom Kenny and stuff like that. How is that celebrity sort of thing for you? Because I like I know a lot of people, like I said, know your know what you've done, but they don't know you yourself who's done it. No, of course nobody recognizes me, which is great. But the thing is, the um, more people than you would think know that song, that little jingle. Oh yeah. It's really become sort of part of the DNA of of SpongeBob, you know, and when you hear that music or my style and I don't do all the music for SpongeBob, of course, I, I think I have about a dozen instrumental songs that are used in the background, including the closing theme. I've been told that, you know, when you hear the music, it kind of feels like you're with SpongeBob and Patrick and it's it's become part of their the character's DNA. It feels really good to be a part of, of, of that. Especially because, I say this from my heart, Steve really cared about the show and the characters. SpongeBob is an innocent character. He's almost like Mickey Mouse or, you know, let's say Bugs Bunny, for example. I used to work at Warner Brothers and I directed cartoons there and did a bunch of, of kids content. The thing with Bun Bugs Bunny, which is also true, with, well, here's a comparison between Bugs Bunny and SpongeBob. Bugs Bunny will not harm anybody unless he's first provoked. Elmer Fudd will stick a gun in his face and try and shoot him. Then Bugs Bunny will say, you know, of course, you know, this means war and he'll get back and he'll continue to seek revenge. But SpongeBob is, is an innocent child, basically. And he will only do good. He will never try and get revenge. But in doing good, he always messes up and winds up creating the worst outcomes for, for everybody else. You know, but it's coming from a place of innocence. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and Steve really thought about that and cared about it. And so he didn't want the characters to um, to kind of break from that good-heartedness. Yeah. You know, so I'm really proud to be to be a part of something like that. You know, there's a lot of animation that maybe is making money, like raking in money might be one of the main motivations. You know, they're like, kids like fart jokes, put more fart jokes in there, you know. But this show, of course, it did become wildly successful, but the intent was to do something that was really good. Oh, yeah, you can definitely tell there's a lot of things that I, you can, there's a reason why this show and jokes and scenes have just became, you know, iconic pop culture, just memes or, you know, just uh -huh. things put on a t-shirt or did you know just you'd be in a crowd and just somebody just yells out the my leg and it's uh -huh. everybody it's the reference from multiple generations. Now, is Fred the my leg guy? Is his name Fred? Yes, yes, yes. The, oh, my leg. And, and I didn't realize that he was also voiced by Plankton, which is Mr. Lawrence. Uh -huh. <laughs> and apparently Larry the Larry the Lobster, because a lot I know Dee Bradley Baker does a lot of the 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 quintessential background characters. And then I was like, oh, it's weird seeing, I didn't know that Mr. Lawrence or, you know, Doug does a lot of the background stuff as too. Uh -huh. So you're like, that's so cool. So yeah, he just did a joke. I think they were doing 
the the crowd walla wallas and then he just screams out my leg to make everybody in the booth laugh uh-huh. and then Steve was like okay that was pretty funny okay keep that in there and so they kept that as a running joke because it made everybody mm-hmm. in the room laugh mm-hmm. it's a good one and now iconic pop thing that everybody does <laughs> yeah and i think there was an episode that featured that guy yes that's how we found out his name was fred <laughs> uh-huh. yeah the, the episode with larry the lobster called ripped pants you remember ripped yes pants? that one's got a ton of my music in it i know because when i see the cue sheets that one appears as one of the i think one of the number one users of my song i think it might be the first episode with larry the lobster I think so, yeah. I know it's in one of the early season one episodes. Mm-hmm. Now, did you write some of the for the songs like Rip Pants? And did you write any of those? Or was that no, somebody else? Did. That's other guys. I just did kind of uh, like little, I, I had this great relationship where I would just make funny music that I thought would be cool. You know, I've been an animation director for a long time, so I knew it would work. I would just submit a bunch of stuff and then music editor of the show would put in stuff here and there wherever he thought it would work. You know? So I didn't really get any direction like, here's the scene, I need you to score the scene. It's called a yeah. needle drop library. You know how record players had a needle and you put it down on, oh, the, yes. on the record? Yes. So they would just use a bunch of songs, drop the needle here and there to make it work. You know? Yeah, so. it's kind of a lot of the stuff that you've written is basically like is uh i guess for any like audio engineer like it's what replaces the white noise in the background hey that's an insult i'm offended (laughs) (laughs) okay i think i think that sometimes i'm just teasing Um, oh i know (laughs) sometimes it's better to not have any music in the background if it fits the scene you know a lot of shows have wall-to-wall music just end to end and it's just kind of like filler. But yes. I think that the, the really, my music kind of puts, instead of white noise, it's more like a mood or a vibe. Yes. Like it might be like this kind of song that you don't really hear it as much as you just feel it and it makes you kind of like want to laugh. Yeah. And that it kind of amplifies the story that's taking place because I think that's the main thing is the music has to serve. The, whatever the story is yes and like with your theme through the original theme like you can tell with the you know the bubbliness and the the quirky little you know ups and downs of the the uh-huh. notes it has that you're portraying that that what you're saying that vibe that feeling that okay i know what i'm going into when i'm watching this show from just that tune alone yeah there's there's uh i was trying to give it a drunken not drunk like you're dr- I'm using that because it's a kid's show. More like silly underwater vibe. So I would give it a lot of um, vibrato. That's where you bend the strings in a way that makes it sound like almost like a tape machine that's varying in speed. And the slide oh, guitar, yeah. you never really land exactly on pitch. Maybe you're a little off, you're a little flat or a little sharp. And, and that gives it that silliness. So when you were constructing the song, how did did you have a the strict idea of like seeing the animation or seeing the cells of okay, I'm gonna structure around the characters, or was it just kind of a it just came to you like in the middle of the night? <laughs> Sometimes it did. No, I would I mean I had a day job, so I'm not a professional musician. I might be thinking about something at work and I get this little jingle idea in my head. And then what I would do is I would, I think this is before people had cell phones. 
like let's say 97, 98. So I get this idea. And so how do you remember it so you don't forget it? I called myself. I pick up the phone. I call my home number and the answering machine picks up. Hi, this is Steve. I'm not here right now. I'll leave a message. Beep. And then I would go, deep, 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 beep, deep. And I would just sort of hum it poorly. And then later I would totally forget it. I'd come home and I'd be like, ah, tired. Who called? And, and and I would say stuff like, hey, Steve, it's it's you. It's me. And I'd call myself. <laughs> and then I would um, hear that idea. And then I'd try and interpret it, record it on guitar. That's awesome. I, I do that now. Like I'm so glad that we have the smartphones that you can just record something in the instant. Where I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. I have this idea. Let me put the title in my notes. And I'm like, okay, this is... Da, 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 da. I had this because uh, I write my own music in songs as well. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, okay, I have this beat or I have this lyric. Let me go ahead and just jot it down. And I can remember what I kind of had in the moment. So that's so cool. Just the the analog way of how you did that is so cool. But I still do it now. I use voice memos. I use those all the time. That, it's a lifesaver for so many things. I'm like, what was that show idea? Or what was that? What was that pitch that I was going to write for the promo uh, voice memo? <laughs> Did you ever, you know, when you're like you have a, a drink at a restaurant and it's got the plastic lid and you have a straw? Yes. And you pull the straw up and down and it kind of makes a funny squeaky sound. You know, the straw in the cup. Well, I wrote a song like that using the straw. It sounds like <laughs> a really crappy violin. Yes. But anyway, I came up with something cool. I'm like, this is going to be funny. This might really work on the show, you know, but. It um it didn't work. It didn't really translate because the music that really works the best is is underscore, which means it's kind of sitting there underneath the dialogue. You no, know? and some things if they compete with the vocal register, you're not hearing the characters talk. Or even if they're not talking and they're doing a bunch of business antics or they're doing something funny, if it's in the vocal range. It just doesn't work. So like everything has its own sort of frequency place in the mix. Yes. So that's why people don't have orchestras using straws and, and glasses. <laughs> now, but from the show to the films, what was that different process or what was your involvement from the shows to the film itself or the different oh, films? that? I, I, I was disappointed that I couldn't provide more music to the films because they, they were, um, seen on the big screen by lots of people and it would pay but the film department is a completely different division i think of paramount than the tv department and so they would hire more famous people to do the music we did do a thing for so i've got music in in all three films it's just a snippet so the first film eve was around he said hey we're going to do this song for um the scene in the movie and it's a scene where SpongeBob and Patrick are in this bar, this biker bar, and the, yes, they're like, "Who blew that bubble?" Or somebody was blew a bubble, or they were singing a goofy goober song or something, and, and the bikers were like, "Who did this?" And they played a song by Motorhead. It was called something like "You Better Run," and they changed it to "You Better Swim." They start playing this heavy music, and they run out of the bar. And then when they exit the bar, they're trying to get to their boat, and that's when they played our song oh i have to go back and check that out because i i love that scene and i never realized that it was a mock of a motorhead song well yeah it's actually motorhead or it's lemmy in the credits my name is is right under or next to motorhead that is amazing 
<laughs> that's as close as I'll get to something, you know, that cool, you know. <laughs> and then in the second film, I think they used a little snippet of my music. And then in the the new film, I don't think, the, I don't even remember if it's in there, but it was something like, I have this song, it's called uh, Seaweed. And it goes like, and, and, and then there's another song called Gator. And it's, it goes like, I don't even remember. It's just a little jingly thing. Yes. In the movie, is this the second film where Plankton's like shooting a bunch of pickles and mayonnaise? And SpongeBob and Patrick have a tank or something, and they're trying I to defend think themselves. So. Yeah, yeah, it's the superhero one. It, it has sort of a, a Mad Max like dystopian. I got this call saying, "Yeah, Steve, they're going to use your music. They want to use this music in the movie." And I'm like thinking, "Yes, you know, I'm rich." <laughs> yes. So I, I watch the movie, and there's like SpongeBob and Patrick. They're like, "No, hey, Patrick." It's like, "Yeah," and they're like, "Ding, do, 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 do." And then they cut to Plankton shooting a bunch of weapons. <laughs> then they cut back and they're like, I think we should do this. Doop, 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 doop. Like, so if you add up my music, it's like two seconds and three seconds. And it's a total of five seconds. Now, for certain scales, I know there's certain things that they have to do a certain amount to get like big royalties for. Isn't it? I think it's like 30 seconds in a film or something like that. It was disappointing, you know, but it's reality. They hired a guy that could really shred to do the close-up of yes. the hands. It was supposed to be Sp SpongeBob had like a wizard hat, and he was like levitating, playing some in ascending arpeggiated solo. And then they cut to these this real guy's hands, you know. And then they do the little David Lee Roth like bop, you know, the yes. little part from uh, from the I, I don't even know what song it is, man. It's hilarious. I, I, I care. Oh, yeah, it's it's great. As a child, I was like, this is cool because I like rock music. But then as an adult, I'm like, I know what that is now. And I'm like, uh -huh. it's hilarious. Like doing a parody that you're like, the adults in the room are going to get this joke. But the kids are like, this is a cool song. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of a ridiculous, absurd way to end the movie to play. I want to rock, you know, to just it's SpongeBob. So anything can really happen. I think the main story, the, you know, they the have the uh, what is it with uh with Patrick with the fishnets? I think. Yeah, they, they had the big boss battle, and so basically the movie's over. So they just went into the wild, you know, musical extravaganza oh, yeah. ending. It's like, yeah, that's what's that's something we can add here. Let's just add this parody of this amazing song, and I'm like, I love that movie you know, so much. Um, you said Patrick and the fishnets. There was another scene later in later episodes. It might have been like season twelve or season eleven the TV show, Mr. Krabs is, is like washing his boat and he's twerking and he's washing his boat and he's got kind of a, he's kind of shaking his booty in yes. a suggestive way. It's actually really kind of disturbing to me. I did get specific direction. You know, we want something kind of like um, baby got back for this clip. <laughs> and so I listened to some reference and I did a, like a little, a cool, kind of beat it'll sir mix a lot yeah it was like a sir mix a lot thing that is amazing that's awesome yeah and so it's so funny that scene, that's, scene, that's my music yeah i'll definitely look it up but that that's something i'm surprised it's still in there because i know there's a lot of things now that like the different streamings have edited out for certain reasons so i'm like the fact that he's in there twerking is still in there makes me laugh <laughs> i have to say i've had a really great run with spongebob which is still on first run, you know, it's still on. There's, they're still making oh, yeah. it. 
it's been a really great experience. However, it's really weird. You know, I've worked for Disney. I've worked for Warner Brothers. I've worked for um, some other media companies. With SpongeBob, which bigger a bigger hit than anything else I've ever worked on, I don't go to work in the, their place. I kind of just make music at home and record it. And that's what I've been doing. Of course, when I've worked for these other places, I, I've I've had to contract saying that this is completely separate from from my work. You wouldn't want to be working at a competing studio trying to give their rival an advantage or something like that. You know, so for, for many years, like 10 or 15 years, I didn't even provide anything to SpongeBob. There was a big gap. Part of that has caused sort of a distance where like I'm on the outside. Like I don't work for Nickelodeon. I was instrumental in providing some of the music, but like I don't really have a relationship with the show, which is in some ways it's great. I'm not getting direction. You don't get like do this, no, do this over again. I know some people that do professional music for TV shows and they they get constant requests to change. They're like, no, the chord you're doing, you should do a minor seventh chord there, you know, and they have to go back and they get really granular, detailed notes. Oh, God. So this is really great. I do whatever I want. If I do, uh, maybe um, if I would give them 30 different songs, out of every 30 songs, maybe one would find its way in the show. So I've amassed a library of hundreds of, of little jingles and songs. And over the years, you know, maybe maybe a dozen or two dozen have been used, sprinkled. And uh, it's pretty unique, I think, in this field. So as of right now, like sort of in that with the show in Nickelodeon, you're sort of a independent contractor, sort of. No, not even. Oh, I I'm I have an arrangement where if I provide stuff, I have a publishing agreement, you know, so they don't have to come to me. And and I don't even think I'm providing any much more music for this show. This has been ongoing for 20 years, you know, yeah. so I think it's kind of run its course with me. But over the years, I would just pretty much drop stuff in a bucket and they would fish it out of the bucket and use it wherever they want. And then I would sort of find out what's used and what's not used. I would find out when I watch it. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Now, how does that all work for like, I guess, since you did the original theme, how does that work for anybody who doesn't know like how like royalties work? How does that work? Like if you compose the original theme and then like it's still being used, but you're not a part of the production anymore. How is yeah. the royalties? I'm sure that, that happens all the time because a lot of um, TV shows might have a theme song that it might even be a famous song that they've reused. You know, let's say let's say um this the show Cheers. Yes. You know, um, I don't think that that person that provided that song was doing ongoing music for the show. They just kind of like picked the person's song. You know. Anyway, yeah. that the way it works is there are two music rights organizations. Call uh, one is called ASCAP, Association of Music. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> Um, it's Association of Songwriters and Composers, I think. And then there's BMI, and I'm a, an ASCAP member. Anyway, these two organizations are called PROs. They track 
every licensed piece of music that's in any TV show or on the radio or streaming or YouTube or whatever. Yeah, so you have to you have to uh, register with this organization and register the songs, and then it's pretty much tracked automatically, and they'll pay they'll pay you. These organizations are really advocates for for artists. You know, they're really they're out there fighting for for your rights as a as a composer or performer. People are always trying to get your music for free, or they're even trying to always like in in Washington, they're always trying to like redefine. Well, your music is played when it's broadcast, let's say. And they're like, well, what if it's not a broadcast? What if it's now it's called a stream? And what if a stream is, you know, a download? Then we don't have to pay. Like they, they're like, so if you're watching something on Hulu versus if you're streaming it on your phone, like everything, they're recategorizing. Basically, they used to have a thing called like, if it plays, it pays. Yeah. You know, so if it plays on the radio, the artist, sometimes an artist might make a song that we all remember and it's played on the radio all the time, your whole life. But this artist maybe couldn't duplicate their success. And they kept trying and they're working their whole life. Fortunately, they can keep getting paid for the song that they did that you're hearing. And it's it's crazy now. Like I've heard like a lot of musicians now because of, you know, stuff like Spotify and all the stuff that happened with Napster, like a lot of musicians are not making money from that same play thing now that a lot of their money now is coming from, you know, performing concerts at live events is where yeah. they get their majority of their money now. Yeah, I mean, it used to be like, let's say you had an album you would have to buy the whole album or the whole cd or tape oh know? yeah and so every song on there comes with it you yeah know? And now you might just download the one that you like you know the hit and so all those other songs that might have brought in income are just laying there you know oh and i guess it's for me like when a new album drops i guess it's because i grew up in that era of that, I kind of, when a new album drops, like, I know I know the singles, and I'm like, let me just go through, let me get the album, let me just go through and listen to each one, or listen to that album a couple times, because eventually I will love every song on this album, because that's how you had to do it. You're like, all right, I paid 15 bucks for the CD, I'm just not going to pay 15 bucks for one song, I'm going to learn to live to like every single one of these songs. Yeah, you know, for, for me... Getting back to my particular deal, you know, I have music on a TV show. So, and that TV show is owned by Viacom. Yeah. Right? So I don't have to fight as a musician. You know, I get I get a little tiny piece of something huge, you know, and they're going to want to keep playing their show, entertaining everybody, you know, advertising, oh, yeah. getting paid. And so I don't have to, I don't have the same type of struggle as like a, like a musician in a band. I don't know. I know it's, I, I know it's been on the air since I was a kid. So it's, it's been, I think it's, I give it another probably. You know what I mean? Having yeah. it a part of a major TV program, it's like a totally different, different deal. I think it would be more well protected. I mean, how long do you think SpongeBob's going to be on TV? At least another probably 15 years minimum. Just I from mean, the success, because I know people who are my age who are now introducing their kids and they're, you know, like people that are introducing their uh, great grandkids. Like my nephew, like I just, I have nephews that are, you know, 
teenagers who are also, you know, tweens. And then I have a nephew that's two years old and I introduced all three of them, you know, to SpongeBob. And then Mm -hmm. I was introduced from my siblings to SpongeBob growing up. So I can see that it's still going to be a show that's going to be growing. It's, it just depends on, I feel it just depends on if they stick with Steve's original, you know, not vision, but like, cause I know his original vision, somebody said that it was a do the one season and you're done. And then it kind of grew from there. But if they stick with his original, you know, the, that wonder and the, the, of what the show is itself, if they stay with that and don't try to change it with, I know you have to change with the times, but if they don't change it to be like something else and uh-huh. not keep its original, what makes SpongeBob SpongeBob, I think it could go, you know, like the Looney Tunes just still going almost a hundred years later. <laughs> yeah. So I, I know it's not that same. I It's not same, you know, thing but it's close to that sort of phenomenon mm-hmm. and i could see as long as they stick with that formula i can see it going another you know couple more decades yeah i mean i think someday it'll be on it'll be like this thing that's a, a hundred years old and people are going to know what it is you know oh yeah you'll have like people my age i guess it goes back to if that if it's done good and it done right it will last forever. Like the golden girls. I always give an example. There's people that watched it when it came out. People my age who are discovering it and falling in love with that show. You like the golden girls? Yes. I love, love. Dude, one of my really good friends. He's, he's a fan. He loves the golden girls. It's consistently hilarious. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's timeless. Like the jokes and everything. It's just that same concept of like, if you're doing something right, it is just, you can sit back no matter how old or how long the old the show is. You can rewatch those episodes and enjoy it no matter what well, it is. And I think that like SpongeBob, like your shirt, which is fantastic, by the way, I can only Thank see I, I see um, Squidward and I see Sandy and there's Plankton and that's the top of SpongeBob. Who else? See, oh, everybody's right. down there. OK. Yeah. <laughs> see, like not not unlike the Golden Girls, what you have here are good, strong characters. Yes. And each character is an individual person, and they're a full person. Like, you can imagine Squidward's childhood. Probably didn't have a lot of friends. And then each character has such strong personality traits, and then they have their weaknesses. You know, like Mr. Krabs is greedy, and he loves money. But he's got a good heart, but he still will always take the money. Yeah. And so as long as, like you were saying, the characters don't really change from who they are, the interplay between the characters kind of keeps keeps the strong episodes coming. Oh yeah, and I it's as all the people that I've heard, you know, who were there from season one to three who moved on. A lot of them were like, "Yes, we had this concept, and I can still see what we laid the ground in the first seasons. How yes, it's changed over the progression of the show, but how that still initial that." I guess that the overall childlike wonder that the show brings is still there, which is, I guess, like everyone said, that what you're seeing with the show, yes, was a concept, but what you're seeing is Steve's himself is in the show still. Yeah, he is. And he he uh, I'm saying this stuff as a fan. I had nothing to do with writing the shows except my initials. SB is 
Steve Belfort is also SpongeBob. But <laughs> I'm saying all this character stuff as a, a film guy and as a fan, but I didn't write any of this stuff. I just provided this silly music. One thing Steve said, I said, hey, Steve, your show is doing so well. I hope you'll keep using my music. It's really, it's making a meaningful impact on my life. You know, I never thought it would. And I hope, and, and he was a busy guy. He had a lot of stuff going on. And he said, he said, Steve, your music's the best part. And and I thought, I mean, that's just a sweet thing that a friend would say to a, to a friend. And I miss him. I miss him really on a deeply personal level. He was a very important friend to me. You know, I know you said your relationship with the show itself. Did you guys like stay in touch through all those 20 years as well? Or Oh, yeah. Yeah, we would play in a band called the Snails. Oh, sweet, sweet, sweet. Carlos, Googe, Steve, and me were in the Snails. And we were kind of like a garage rock band. We'd get together and we would jam pretty much ongoing, you know, for 20 years or so. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Yeah. Now, did you guys know, like, I don't know if, I don't, like I said, I don't know the full story. Did you guys know that he had the illness that he had before, you know, his passing or? Uh, I found out about it. An interesting thing is I, um, it happened so quick. It's a terrible illness. It's called ALS. And remember they did that ice bucket challenge a few years ago where everybody's dumping the ice bucket on their head. It was, yes. you know, it didn't work, man. It didn't help, oh, I know. you know, but um, it did raise awareness of what the name is of this of this illness. But uh, I went to the art museum with my family. What's it called? LACMA, Los Angeles Contemporary Museum of Art. It's this huge museum. It's really cool. You should. So I go to the museum and we're watching this exhibit and I look and I turn over there, Steve, and I didn't know he was going to be there. But we had such this close friendship that it wasn't really a surprise to see. I mean, L.A. is big. Yes. You just go to a place and then you look and then there's like one of your best friends. It's just like right there. So I just said to him, like, I just played it off, like, to be funny, like, hey, how you doing, man? And he's like, <laughs> oh, pretty good. Like, but it seemed kind of weird. Something seemed a little off. Like maybe he I was making a joke and then but he maybe had a slight feeling of disorientation or something like I think my joke maybe threw him off a little bit you know as opposed to his normal I went with him to to buy an electric guitar like in a VW Bug like in college oh we drove all the way across town to buy like a Fender Strat copy guitar you know so we knew each other really well but yeah I sensed some I, I didn't know I thought maybe he was a little like maybe is he mad at me or something he just seemed a little distant not himself yeah a little distant and anyway, then we shortly after found out that he, he had that. And but he kept working and he kept working as much as he could. He'd keep going to the studio until he required a driver to, to transport him to the studio because he wanted to stay involved as long as he possibly could. I would have lunch with him every week or every two weeks. And uh, we would just talk about our kids and animation, that kind of thing, you know, but he wanted to he really believed in the show and his legacy you know 
Oh yeah. Now when I know when when he passed there was going to be a torch change for, you know, the directing the show because I know that he was the main director and everything. Was you were they at did they ask you if you wanted to since you had the experience because I know Tom Kenny does it now. Uh did were you did he ask you if you were interested in being the director or Oh, um I, that was never an opportunity to me except in the early days, early early days, season 1, I interviewed to direct and it would require like going through these exposure sheets and making little outlines of the characters scene by scene as they talk and, and little scribble yeah. notes. And it's a very detailed frame by frame process. But no, no, the, I had no real connection when the show sort of transitioned. I didn't have a relationship with Nickelodeon as an animation director, just as a music provider. Oh, yeah. Which I know a lot of people say that Tom does, you know, he does keep that same feel that steve did and since he's been working on it for so long and oh he is spongebob he knows he knows yeah, yeah, he, does. <laughs> he directs the voiceover i think the voiceover sessions now for you being that that art that uh director side of things for people who don't realize what is the difference between you know like we all know what like a film director does what is it different for like you know an animation director what is all comes with like how does that work or how does that differ from a regular you know like film or uh -huh. live action director well animation you have control over every single frame frame by frame and so you you can plan out what everything is going to be you know i think in live action the actors would have a spontaneous chemistry or ad lib or the director might see things happen and be able to say, go with that, or um, let's explore this. And then they will be able to edit. Well, with animation, and it's so expensive, you have to start with a, a script. Sometimes it's a script. Sometimes the storyboard is the first stage. You know, a, SpongeBob originally was written in the storyboarding phase. And that's one yes. of the reasons it was so good. But they, they would start with like story beats almost like bullet points, like, um, and this is only just what I've learned through Steve and stuff. I didn't work on it, you know, a yeah. bunch of my friends did, but they would say like, you know, what's the synopsis? SpongeBob and Patrick find a, a, a jellyfish and try and catch it, you know? And then they start writing jokes, like guy falls down, net falls on his head, trapping the jellyfish. It's shocking the, his face, you know, like they just write story beats. You know, Squidward gets annoyed, you know, tries to make them shut up, you know, and then maybe the ending. And it would be that loose. And then through the yes. storyboarding process, they start seeing it happen and changing it and adding gags and pitching it in a room with other, you know, with the gang and plussing it. That means making it better and better. And then it goes to this director where that board is translated onto these exposure sheets, which goes frame by frame through all the dialogue. You know, I think after the boards, then they cut an animatic, which yes. is like a, a timed out storyboard with the voiceover. And, and I think the VO, that's the chance for the actors to maybe come up with better lines. Yeah, I think Tom said in interviews, like he's done something different that they're like, he's like, hey, can I try this? Because that Steve was very open to them improvising. And he knew Tom and them, you know, a lot of them are, you know, really classical trained actors. And they were like, you know, he let them improvise and they did a line. I think one, oh, I can't remember what scene it was, but Tom did a line or did a a difference in the voice. And they're like, okay, we got to redraw that because that was way better than what we initially had in the storyboard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that 
they find the balance of wanting to make it funnier, funnier and funnier, but also keeping their mind on the budget. Like, well, there's a limit to how many things you could go back and redraw, you know, it's a limit, but sometimes it's worth it because in the end, all that matters is that it's good animation. You could, you could tweak each movement, you know, like if somebody's jumping, you know, you might want them to squash down more before they jump and then, and they jump up and then there's a little, they fall, but the hat stays up in the air and the hat lands last, you know, it's like overlapping action and reaction and all these great principles. You have a lot more control animation than the live stuff, but live action, it's like, so here's my silly thing. I've got this, I started during the pandemic, we're all stuck at home, right? And so I wanted to entertain my friends. So I'm into, into cars. So I came up with this thing called Steve's Garage Show, and it's me in the garage messing around with my little race car. But I started to introduce animation, and I got a robot sidekick, like a clumsy robot sidekick. Oh I always wanted to have a clumsy robot sidekick. I mean, wouldn't you? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it always makes me think of ever since I, I saw uh, Lost in Space, I've always wanted the robot sidekick, yeah, like the kid. Exactly. So. So yeah, check it out. It's on, I've got a YouTube show called Steve's Garage Show, and it's live action, but there's some animation. I just did it to entertain my friends, like I said, during the pandemic, but it kind of took off, and it's my foray into live action. It's so much easier. I'm not saying live action filmmaking is easy, because in on the theatrical level, you have teams and teams of artisans and craftspeople and lighting and all this stuff, you know. Yes. But as an independent animator, making my own animated films versus making my own YouTube show live action, you could do a five-minute show in a day yes. live. But to do five minutes of animation, it might take you a month. Check out my show. Um, I think you'll, I could send you a link if you want to see it. That's some of it's pretty. Yeah, fun. yeah, yeah. Definitely send a link. I'll put it in the show notes too, so everybody listening as well can check it out yeah, too. Check it out. I have hundreds. I have I have tens of subscribers. <laughs> <laughs> what are your uh, anybody can reach you or what are your, anything you want to promote or send them links or whatever? Steve's Garage Show on YouTube. Before I go, do you want me to play my SpongeBob song for you? Yes, I was actually going to see if you would do that as a little outro for me. Yeah, let me go grab it. Um, my guitar's right here. Can you hear this? Sometimes it does a noise cancellation on these Zoom calls. That was awesome. And like I said, I enjoyed it so much. Thank you for coming on the show. And like I said, we'll do the outros and I'll let you get out of here, man. All right, everyone. That's going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad podcast. Would you like to start outro? We always say enjoy the madness. Enjoy the madness. We're now leaving the Phantom Squad podcast. This podcast is brought to you by and produced by 
Fandom Punk Productions and is a proud and founding member of the Red Saucer Network, where anything is possible.